Conan and Friends, a fantasy pulp fiction audiobook podcast. Voice characterizations and sound design by Audiodrama.ai. Conan by Robert E. Howard. Episode 15. The People of the Black Circle. Part 1 of 2. Chapter 1. The King of Vendia was dying. Through the hot, stifling night, the temple gongs boomed and the conches roared. Their clamor was a faint echo in the gold-domed chamber, where Bunda Chan struggled on the velvet-cushioned dais. Beads of sweat glistened on his dark skin. His fingers twisted the gold-worked fabric beneath him. He was young. No spear touched him. No poison lurked in his wine. But his veins stood out like blue cords on his temples, and his eyes dilated with the nearness of death. Trembling slave girls knelt at the foot of the dais, and leaning down to him, watching him with passionate intensity, was his sister, the Devi Asmina. With her was the Wazam, a noble grown old in the royal court. She threw up her head in a gusty gesture of wrath and despair as the thunder of the distant drums reached her ears. The priests and their clamor, she exclaimed. They are no wiser than the leeches who are helpless. Nay, he dies, and none can say why. He is dying now, and I stand here helpless. Who would burn the whole city and spill the blood of thousands to save him? Not a man of Ayodhya but would die in his place, if it might be Devi, answered the Wazam. This poison. I tell you, it is not poison, she cried. Since his birth, he has been guarded so closely that the cleverest poisons of the East could not reach him. Five skulls bleaching on the Tower of the Kites can testify to attempts which were made and which fail. As you well know, there are ten men and ten women whose sole duty is to taste his food and wine, and fifty armed warriors guard his chamber as they guard it now. No, it is not poison, it is sorcery. Black, ghastly magic. She ceased as the king spoke. His livid lips did not move, and there was no recognition in his glassy eyes. But his voice rose in an eerie call, indistinct and far away, as if called to her from beyond vast wind-blown gulfs. Yasmina, Yasmina, my sister, where are you? I cannot find you. All is darkness and the roaring of great winds. Brother! cried Yasmina, catching his limp hand in a convulsive grasp. I am here. Do you not know me? A voice died at the utter vacancy of his face. A low, confused moan waned from his mouth. The slave girls at the foot of the dais whimpered with fear, and Yasmina beat her breast in anguish. In another part of the city, a man stood in a latticed balcony, overlooking a long street in which torches tossed luridly smokily revealing upturned dark faces and the whites of gleaming eyes. A long-drawn wailing rose from the multitude. The man shrugged his broad shoulders and turned back into the arabesque chamber. He was a tall man, compactly built and richly clad. The king is not yet dead, but the dirge is sounded, he said to another man who sat cross-legged on a mat in a corner. This man was clad in a brown camel-hair robe and sandals, and a green turban was on his head. His expression was tranquil, his gaze impersonal. The people know he will never see another dawn, this man answered. The first speaker favored him with a long, searching stare. What I cannot understand, he said, is why I have had to wait so long for your masters to strike. If they have slain the king now, why could they not have slain him months ago? 
Even the arts you call sorcery are governed by cosmic laws, answered the man in the green turban. The stars direct these actions, as in other affairs. Not even my masters can order the stars. Not until the heavens were in the proper order could they perform this necromancy. With a long, stained fingernail, he mapped the constellations on the marble-tiled floor. The slant of the moon presaged evil for the king of Vendia. The stars are in turmoil, the serpent in the house of the elephant. During such juxtaposition, the invisible guardians are removed from the spirit of Bunderchand. A path is opened in the unseen realms, and once a point of contact was established, mighty powers were put in play along that path. Point of contact? inquired the other. Do you mean that lock of Bunderchand's hair? Yes. All discarded portions of the human body still remain part of it, attached to it by intangible connections. The priests of Azura have a dim inkling of this truth, and so all nail trimmings, hair and other waste products of the persons of the royal family are carefully reduced to ashes and the ashes hidden. But at the urgent entreaty of the princess of Kozala, who loved Bunderchand vainly, he gave her a lock of his long black hair as a token of remembrance. When my masters decided upon his doom, the lock, in its golden, jewel-encrusted case, was stolen from under her pillow while she slept, and another substituted, so like the first, that she never knew the difference. Then the genuine lock travelled by camel caravan up the long, long road to Peshkauri, thence up the Zaibar Pass, until it reached the hands of those for whom it was intended. Only a lock of hair, murmured the nobleman, by which a soul is drawn from its body and across gulfs of echoing space, returned the man on the mat. The nobleman studied him curiously. I do not know if you are a man or a demon, Kemser, he said at last. Few of us are what we seem. I, whom the Kshatriyas know as Karim Shah, a prince from Iranistan, am no greater a masquerader than most men. They are all traitors in one way or another, and half of them know not whom they serve. There at least I have no doubts, for I serve King Yezdigerd of Turan. And I, the Black Seers of Yimshah, said Kemsa, and my masters are greater than yours, for they have accomplished by their arts what Yezdegaard could not with a hundred thousand swords. Outside, the moan of the tortured thousands shuddered up to the stars, which crusted the sweating Vendian night, and the conchers bellowed like oxen in pain. In the gardens of the palace, the torches glinted on polished helmets and curved swords and gold-chased corslets. All the noble-born fighting men of Ayodhya were gathered in the great palace or about it, and at each broad arched gate and door, fifty archers stood on guard, with bows in their hands. But death stalked through the royal palace, and none could stay his ghostly tread. On the dais under the golden dome, the king cried out again, racked by awful paroxysms. Again his voice came faintly and far away, and again the Devi bent to him, trembling with a fear that was darker than the terror of death. Yasmina, again that far, weirdly dreeing cry from realms immeasurable. Aid me, I am far from my mortal house. Wizards have drawn my soul through the wind-blown darkness. They seek to snap the silver cord that binds me to my dying body. They cluster around me. Their hands are taloned, their eyes are red like flame burning in darkness. My eyes are red like flame burning in darkness. Eyes, save me, my sister. Fingers sear me like fire. They would slay my body and damn my soul. What is this they bring before me? Aye, 
At the terror in his hopeless cry, Yasmina screamed uncontrollably and threw herself bodily upon him in the abandon of her anguish. He was torn by a terrible convulsion. Foam flew from his contorted lips, and his writhing fingers left their marks on the girl's shoulders. But the glassy blankness passed from his eyes like smoke blown from a fire, and he looked up at his sister with recognition. Brother, she sobbed, brother. Swift, he gasped, and his weakening voice was rational. I know now what brings me to the pyre. I have been on a far journey, and I understand. I have been on a far journey, and I understand. I have been ensorcelled by the wizards of the Himalians. They drew my soul out of my body and far away into a stone room. There they strove to break the silver cord of life and thrust my soul into the body of a foul knight. Weird, their sorcery summoned up from hell. Ali, I feel their pull upon me now. Your cry and the grip of your fingers brought me back, but I am going fast. My soul clings to my body, but its hold weakens. Quick, kill me before they can trap my soul forever. I cannot, she wailed, smiting her naked breasts. Swiftly. I command you. There was the old imperious note in his failing whisper. You have never disobeyed me. Obey my last command. Send my soul clean to Asura. Haste, lest you damn me to spend eternity as a filthy gaunt of darkness. Strike. I command you, strike. Sobbing wildly, Yasmina plucked a jeweled dagger from her girdle and plunged it to the hilt in his breast. He stiffened and then went limp, a grim smile curving his dead lips. Yasmina hurled herself face down on the rush-covered floor, beating the reeds with her clenched hands. Outside, the gongs and conches brayed and thundered, and the priests gashed themselves with copper knives. Chapter 2 Chanda Shan, governor of Peshkauri, laid down his golden pen and carefully scanned that which he had written on parchment that bore his official seal. He had ruled Peshkauri so long only because he weighed his every word spoken or written. Danger breeds caution, and only a wary man lives long in that wild country where the hot Vendian plains meet the crags of the Himelians. An hour's ride westward or northward and one crossed the border, and was among the hills where men lived by the law of the knife. The governor was alone in his chamber, seated at his ornately carven table of inlaid ebony. Through the wide window, open for the coolness, he could see a square of the blue Hamelian night, dotted with great white stars. An adjacent parapet was a shadowy line, and further crenelles and embrasures were barely hinted at in the dim starlight. The governor's fortress was strong, and situated outside the walls of the city it guarded. The breeze that stirred the tapestries on the wall brought faint noises from the streets of Peshkauri, occasional snatches of wailing song, or the thrum of a sithen. The governor read what he had written slowly with his open hand shading his eyes from the bronze butter lamp, his lips moving. Absently, as he read, he heard the drum of horses' hooves outside the barbican, the sharp staccato of the guard's challenge. He did not heed, intent upon his letter. It was addressed to the Wazam of Vendia, at the royal court of Ayodhya, and it stated, after the customary salutations, Let it be known to your excellency that I have faithfully carried out your excellency's instructions. The seven tribesmen are well guarded in their prison, and I have repeatedly sent word into the hills that their chief come in person to bargain for their release. But he has made no move except to send word that unless they are freed, he will burn Peshkauri and cover his saddle with my hide, begging your excellency's indulgence. 
This he is quite capable of attempting, and I have tripled the numbers of the lance guards. The man is not a native of Gulistan. I cannot with certainty predict his next move, but since it is the wish of the Devi, he was out of his ivory chair and on his feet, facing the arched door, all in one instant. He snatched at the curved sword lying in its ornate scabbard on the table, and then checked the movement. It was a woman who had entered unannounced, a woman whose gossamer robes did not conceal the rich garments beneath them any more than they concealed the suppleness and beauty of her tall, slender figure. A filmy veil fell below her breasts, supported by a flowing headdress bound about with a triple gold braid and adorned with a golden crescent. Her dark eyes regarded the astonished governor over the veil, and then with an imperious gesture of her white hand, she uncovered her face. Devi, the governor dropped to his knees before her, surprise and confusion somewhat spoiling the stateliness of his obeisance. With a gesture she motioned him to rise, and he hastened to lead her to the ivory chair, all the while bowing level with his girdle. But his first words were of reproof. Your Majesty, this was most unwise. The border is unsettled. Raids from the hills are incessant. You came with a large attendance. An ample retinue followed me to Peshkauri, she answered. I lodged my people there and came onto the fort with my maid, Gitara. Chanda Shan groaned in horror. Devi... You do not understand the peril. An hour's ride from this spot, the hills swarm with barbarians who make a profession of murder and rapine. Women have been stolen and men stabbed between the fort and the city. Pishgori is not like your southern provinces. But I am here and unharmed, she interrupted with a trace of impatience. I showed my signet ring to the guard at the gate and to the one outside your door, and they admitted me unannounced, not knowing me but supposing me to be a secret courier from Iodia. Let us not now waste time. You have received no word from the chief of the barbarians? None save threats and curses, Devi. He is wary and suspicious. He deems it a trap, and perhaps he is not to be blamed. The Kshatriyas have not always kept their promises to the hill people. He must be brought to terms, broke in Yasmina, the knuckles of her clenched hands showing white. I do not understand. The governor shook his head. When I chanced to capture these seven hillmen, I reported their capture to the Wazam, as is the custom, and then, before I could hang them, they came in order to hold them and communicate with their chief. This I did, but the man holds aloof, as I have said. These men are of the tribe of Afgulis, but he is a foreigner from the west and he is called Conan. I have threatened to hang them tomorrow at dawn if he does not come. Good, exclaimed the Devi. You have done well, and I will tell you why I have given the orders. My brother, she faltered, choking, and the governor bowed his head with the customary gesture of respect for a departed sovereign. The king of Vendia was destroyed by magic, she said at last. I have devoted my life to the destruction of his murderers. As he died, he gave me a clue, and I have followed it. I have read the Book of Skellows, and talked with nameless hermits in the caves below Gile. I learned how, and by whom, he was destroyed. His enemies were the Black Seers of Mount Yimsha. Ashura, whispered Chandashan, paling. Her eyes knifed him through. Do you fear them? Who does not, your majesty, he replied. They are black devils, haunting the uninhabited hills beyond the Zaibar. But the sages say that they seldom interfere in the lives of mortal men. Why they slew my brother, I do not know, she answered. But I have sworn on the altar of Asura to destroy them, 
and I need the aid of a man beyond the border, a Kshatriya army unaided would never reach Yimsha. Aye, muttered Chandashan. You speak the truth there. It would be fight every step of the way, with hairy hillmen hurling down boulders from every height, and rushing us with their long knives in every valley. The Turanians fought their way through the Himalians once, but how many returned to Kurasan? Few of those who escaped the swords of the Kshatriyas after the king, your brother, defeated their host on the Jumda River, ever saw Secondurum again. And so I must control men across the border, she said, men who know the way to Mount Yimsha. But the tribes fear the Black Seers and shun the unholy mountain, broke in the governor. Does the chief Conan fear them? she asked. Well, as to that, muttered the governor, I doubt if there is anything that devil fears. So I have been told. Therefore he is the man I must deal with. He wishes the release of his seven men. Very well. Their ransom shall be the heads of the Black Seers. Her voice thrummed with hate as she uttered the last words, and her hands clenched at her sides. She looked an image of incarnate passion as she stood there with her head thrown high and her bosom heaving. Again the governor knelt, for part of his wisdom was the knowledge that a woman in such an emotional tempest is as perilous as a blind cobra to any about her. It shall be as you wish, your majesty. Then, as she presented a calmer aspect, he rose and ventured to drop a word of warning. I cannot predict what the chief Conan's action will be. The tribesmen are always turbulent, and I have reason to believe that emissaries from the Turanians are stirring them up to raid our borders. As your majesty knows, the Turanians have established themselves in Secunderam and other northern cities, though the hill tribes remain unconquered. King Yezdegerd has long looked southward with greedy lust, and perhaps is seeking to gain by treachery what he could not win by force of arms. I have thought that Conan might well be one of his spies. We shall see, she answered. If he loves his followers, he will be at the gates at dawn, to parley. I shall spend the night in the fortress. I came in disguise to Peshkori, and lodged my retinue at an inn, instead of the palace. Besides my people, only yourself knows of my presence here. I shall escort you to your quarters, your majesty, said the governor, and as they emerged from the doorway, he beckoned the warrior on guard there, and the man fell in behind them, spear held at salute. The maid waited, veiled like her mistress, outside the door, and the group traversed a wide, winding corridor, lighted by smoky torches, and reached the quarters reserved for visiting notables, generals and viceroys. Mostly, none of the royal family had ever honoured the fortress before. Chandashan had a perturbed feeling that the suite was not suitable to such an exalted personage as the Devi, and though she sought to make him feel at ease in her presence, he was glad when she dismissed him, and he bowed himself out. All the menials of the fort had been summoned to serve his royal guest, though he did not divulge her identity, and he stationed a squad of spearmen before her doors, among them the warrior who had guarded his own chamber. In his preoccupation, he forgot to replace the man. The governor had not been long gone from her when Yasmina suddenly remembered something else which she had wished to discuss with him, but had forgotten until that moment. It concerned the past actions of one Karim Shah, a nobleman from Iranistan, who had dwelt for a while in Peshkauri before coming on to the court at Ayodhya. A vague suspicion concerning the man had been stirred by a glimpse of him in Peshkauri that night. She wondered if he had followed her from Ayodhya. 
Being a truly remarkable Devi, she did not summon the governor to her again, but hurried out into the corridor alone and hastened toward his chamber. Chandashan, entering his chamber, closed the door and went to his table. There he took the letter he had been writing and tore it to bits. Scarcely had he finished when he heard something drop softly onto the parapet adjacent to the window. He looked up to see a figure loom briefly against the stars, and then a man dropped lightly into the room. The light glinted on a long sheen of steel in his hand. "'Shh!' he warned. "'Don't make a noise, or I'll send the devil a henchman.' The governor checked his motion toward the sword on the table. He was within reach of the yard-long Zaibar knife that glittered in the intruder's fist, and he knew the desperate quickness of a hillman. The invader was a tall man, at once strong and supple. He was dressed like a hillman, but his dark features and blazing blue eyes did not match his garb. Chandashan had never seen a man like him. He was not an Easterner, but some barbarian from the West. But his aspect was as untamed and formidable as any of the hairy tribesmen who haunt the hills of Gulistan. You come like a thief in the night, commented the governor, recovering some of his composure, although he remembered that there was no guard within call. Still, the hillman could not know that. I climbed a bastion, snarled the intruder. A guard thrust his head over the battlement, in time for me to wrap it with my knife hilt. You are Conan? Who else? You sent word into the hills that you wished for me to come and parley with you. Well, by Kram, I've come. Keep away from that table or I'll gut you. I merely wish to seat myself, answered the governor, carefully sinking into the ivory chair, which he wheeled away from the table. Conan moved restlessly before him, glancing suspiciously at the door, thumbing the razor edge of his three-foot knife. He did not walk like an Afghuli, and was bluntly direct where the east is subtle. You have seven of my men, he said abruptly. You refuse the ransom I offered. What the devil do you want? Let us discuss terms, answered Chandashan cautiously. Terms. There was a timbre of dangerous anger in his voice. What do you mean? Haven't I offered you gold? Chanda Shan laughed. Gold? There is more gold in Peshkari than you ever saw. You're a liar, retorted Conan. I've seen the souk of the goldsmiths in Kurusun. Well, more than an Afghuli ever saw, amended Chanda Shan. And it is but a drop of all the treasure of Vendia. Why should we desire gold? It would be more to our advantage to hang these seven thieves. Conan ripped out a sulfurous oath, and the long blade quivered in his grip as the muscles rose in ridges on his brown arm. I'll split your head like a ripe melon. A wild blue flame flickered in the hillman's eyes, but Chandashan shrugged his shoulders, though keeping an eye on the keen steel. You can kill me easily and probably escape over the wall afterward, but that would not save the seven tribesmen. My men would surely hang them, and these men are headmen among the Afkulas. I know it, snarled Conan. The tribe is baying like wolves at my heels because I have not procured their release. Tell me in plain words what you want, because by Kram, if there's no other way, I'll raise a horde and lead it to the very gates of Peshkori. Looking at the man as he stood squarely, knife in fist and eyes glaring, Chandashan did not doubt that he was capable of it. The governor did not believe any hill horde could take Peshkuri, but he did not wish a devastated countryside. There is a mission you must perform, he said, choosing his words with as much care as if they had been razors. There, Conan had sprung back, wheeling to face the door at the same instant, lips snarl, 
His barbarian ears had caught the quick tread of soft slippers outside the door. The next instant, the door was thrown open, and a slim, silk-robed form entered hastily, pulling the door shut, then stopping short at sight of the hillman. Chanda Shan sprang up, his heart jumping into his mouth. Davy! he cried involuntarily, losing his head momentarily in his fright. Devi, it was like an explosive echo from the hillman's lips. Chandshan saw recognition and intent flame up in the fierce blue eyes. The governor shouted desperately and caught at his sword, but the hillman moved with the devastating speed of a hurricane. He sprang, knocked the governor, sprawling with a savage blow of his knife hilt, swept up the astounded Devi in one brawny arm and leaped for the window. Chanda Shan, struggling frantically to his feet, saw the man poise an instant on the sill in a flutter of silken skirts and white limbs that was his royal captive, and heard his fierce, exultant snarl, now dare to hang my men, and then Conan leaped to the parapet and was gone. A wild scream floated back to the governor's ears. God! God! screamed the governor, struggling up and running drunkenly to the door. He tore it open and reeled into the hall. His shouts re-echoed along the corridors, and warriors came running, gaping to see the governor holding his broken head, from which the blood streamed. Turn out the lancers, he roared. There has been an abduction. Even in his frenzy, he had enough sense left to withhold the full truth. He stopped short as he heard a sudden drum of hooves outside, a frantic scream and a wild yell of barbaric exultation. Followed by the bewildered guardsmen, the governor raced for the stair. In the courtyard of the fort, a force of lancers stood by saddled steeds, ready to ride at an instant's notice. Chandashan led his squadron flying after the fugitive, though his head swam, so he had to hold with both hands to the saddle. He did not divulge the identity of the victim, but said merely that the noble woman who had borne the royal signet ring had been carried away by the chief of the Afghulis. The abductor was out of sight and hearing, but they knew the path he would strike the road that runs straight to the mouth of the Zaibar. There was no moon. Peasant huts rose dimly in the starlight. Behind them fell away the grim bastion of the fort and the towers of Peshkauri. Ahead of them loomed the black walls of the Hymelians. Chapter 3 in the confusion that reigned in the fortress while the guard was being turned out, no one noticed that the girl who had accompanied the Devi slipped out the great arched gate and vanished in the darkness. She ran straight for the city, her garments tucked high. She did not follow the open road, but cut straight through fields and over slopes, avoiding fences and leaping irrigation ditches, as surely as if it were broad daylight, and as easily as if she were a trained masculine runner, the hoof-drum of the guardsmen had faded away up the hill before she reached the city wall. She did not go to the great gate, beneath whose archmen leaned on spears and craned their necks into the darkness, discussing the unwanted activity about the fortress. She skirted the wall until she reached a certain point where the spire of the tower was visible above the battlements. Then she placed her hands to her mouth and voiced a low, weird call that carried strangely. Almost instantly, a head appeared at an embrasure, and a rope came wriggling down the wall. She seized it, placed a foot in the loop at the end, and waved her arm. Then quickly and smoothly, she was drawn up the sheer stone curtain. An instant later, she scrambled over the merlins and stood up on a flat roof, which covered a house that was built against the wall. 
There was an open trap there, and a man in a camel-hair robe who silently coiled the rope, not showing in any way the strain of hauling a full-grown woman up a forty-foot wall. Where is Kareem Shah? she gasped, panting after her long run. Asleep in the house below. You have news? Conan has stolen the Devi out of the fortress and carried her away into the hills. She blurted out her news in a rush, the words stumbling over each other. Kemsa showed no emotion, but merely nodded his turbaned head. Kareem Shah will be glad to hear that, he said. Wait, the girl threw her supple arms about his neck. She was panting hard, but not only from exertion. Her eyes blazed like black jewels in the starlight. Her upturned face was close to Kemsa's, but though he submitted to her embrace, he did not return it. Do not tell the Harkanian, she panted. Let us use this knowledge ourselves. The governor has gone into the hills with his riders, but he might as well chase a ghost. He has not told anyone that it was the Devi who was kidnapped. None in Peshkari or the fort knows it except us. But what good does it do us? The man expostulated. My master sent me with Kareem Shah to aid him in every way. Aid yourself, she cried fiercely. Shake off your yoke. You mean... Disobey my masters, he gasped, and she felt his whole body turn cold under her arms. I, she shook him in the fury of her emotion. You too are a magician. Why will you be a slave, using your powers only to elevate others? Use your arts for yourself. That is forbidden. He was shaking as if with an ache. I am not one of the black circle. Only by the command of the masters do I dare to use the knowledge they have taught me. But you can use it, she argued passionately. Do as I beg you. Of course, Conan has taken the Devi to hold us hostage against the seven tribesmen in the governor's prison. Destroy them, so Chandashan cannot use them to buy back the Devi. Then let us go into the mountains and take her from the Afkalis. They cannot stand against your sorcery with their knives. The treasure of the Vendian kings will be ours as ransom. And then when we have it in our hands, we can trick them and sell her to the king of Turan. We shall have wealth beyond our maddest dreams. With it, we can buy warriors. We will take Corpul, oust the Turanians from the hills, and send our hosts southward, become king and queen of an empire. Kemsa, too, was panting, shaking like a leaf in her grasp. His face showed grey in the starlight, beaded with great drops of perspiration. I love you! She cried fiercely, writhing her body against his, almost strangling him in her wild embrace, shaking him in her abandon. I will make a king of you. For love of you, I betrayed my mistress. For love of me, betray your masters. Why fear the black seers? By your love for me, you have broken one of their laws already. Break the rest. You are as strong as they. A man of ice could not have withstood the searing heat of her passion and fury. With an inarticulate cry, he crushed her to him, bending her backward and showering gasping kisses on her eyes, face and lips. I'll do it. His voice was thick with laboring emotions. He staggered like a drunken man. The arts they have taught me shall work for me, not for my masters. We shall be rulers of the world. Of the world. Come then. Twisting lithely out of his embrace, she seized his hand and led him toward the trap door. First, we must make sure that the governor does not exchange those seven Afkolis for the Devi. He moved like a man in a daze, until they had descended a ladder, and she paused in the chamber below. Kareem Shah lay on a couch motionless, 
an arm across his face as though to shield his sleeping eyes from the soft light of a brass lamp. She plucked Kemsa's arm and made a quick gesture across her own throat. Kemsa lifted his hand. Then his expression changed and he drew away. I have eaten his salt, he muttered. Besides, he cannot interfere with us. He led the girl through a door that opened on a winding stair. After their soft tread had faded into silence, the man on the couch sat up. Kareem Shah wiped the sweat from his face. A knife thrust he did not dread, but he feared Kemsa as a man fears a poisonous reptile. People who plot on roofs should remember to lower their voices, he muttered. But as Kemsa has turned against his masters, and as he was my only contact with them, I can count on their aid no longer. From now on, I play the game in my own way. Rising to his feet, he went quickly to a table, drew pen and parchment from his girdle, and scribbled a few succinct lines. To Khosru Khan, governor of Secunderam, the Cimmerian Conan has carried the Devi Yasmina to the villages of the Afkulis. It is an opportunity to get the Devi into our hands, as the king has so long desired. Send three thousand horsemen at once. I will meet them in the valley of Guroshar with native guides, and he signed it with a name that was not in the least like Karim Shah. Then from a golden cage he drew forth a carrier pigeon, to whose leg he made fast the parchment, rolled into a tiny cylinder, and secured with gold wire. Then he went quickly to a casement, and tossed the bird into the night. It wavered on fluttering wings, balanced, and was gone like a flitting shadow. Catching up helmet, sword and cloak, Karim Shah hurried out of the chamber and down the winding stair. The prison quarters of Peshkauri were separated from the rest of the city by a massive wall in which was set a single iron-bound door under an arch. Over the arch burned a lurid red cresset and beside the door stood, or squatted, a warrior with spear and shield. This warrior, leaning on his spear and yawning from time to time, started suddenly to his feet. He had not thought he had dozed, but a man was standing before him, a man he had not heard approach. The man wore a camel hair robe and a green turban. In the flickering light of the cresset, his features were shadowy, but a pair of lambent eyes shone surprisingly in the lurid glow. Who comes? demanded the warrior, presenting his spear. Who are you? The stranger did not seem perturbed, though the spear point touched his bosom. His eyes held the warrior's with strange intensity. What are you obliged to do? he asked strangely. To guard the gate. The warrior spoke thickly and mechanically. He stood rigid as a statue, his eyes slowly glazing. You lie. You are obliged to obey me. You have looked into my eyes, and your soul is no longer your own. Open that door. Stiffly, with the wooden features of an image, the guard wheeled about, drew a great key from his girdle, turned it in the massive lock, and swung open the door. Then he stood at attention, his unseeing stare straight ahead of him. A woman glided from the shadows and laid an eager hand on the mesmerist's arm. Bid him fetch us horses, Kimsa, she whispered. No need of that, answered the Raksha. Lifting his voice slightly, he spoke to the guardsman. I have no more use for you. Kill yourself! Like a man in a trance, the warrior thrust the butt of his spear against the base of the wall and placed the keen head against his body just below the ribs. Then slowly... Stolidly, he leaned against it with all his weight, so that it transfixed his body and came out between his shoulders. Sliding down the shaft, he lay still, a spear jutting above him its full length, like a horrible stalk growing out of his back. 
The girl stared down at him in morbid fascination until Kemsa took her arm and led her through the gate. Torches lighted a narrow space between the outer wall and a lower inner one in which were arched doors at regular intervals. A warrior paced this enclosure, and when the gate opened he came sauntering up, so secure in his knowledge of the prison's strength that he was not suspicious until Kemsa and the girl emerged from the archway. Then it was too late. The Rakshar did not waste time in hypnotism, though his actions savoured of magic to the girl. The guard lowered his spear threateningly, opening his mouth to shout an alarm that would bring spearmen swarming out of the guard rooms at either end of the alleyway. Kemsa flicked the spear aside with his left hand, as a man might flick a straw, and his right flashed out and back, seeming gently to caress the warrior's neck in passing, and the guard pitched on his face without a sound, his head lolling on a broken neck. Kemsa did not glance at him, but went straight to one of the arched doors and placed his open hand against the heavy bronze lock. With a rending shudder, the portal buckled inward. As the girl followed him through, she saw that the thick teak wood hung in splinters. The bronze bolts were bent and twisted from their sockets, and the great hinges broken and disjointed. A thousand-pound battering ram with forty men to swing it could have shattered the barrier no more completely. Kemza was drunk with freedom and the exercise of his power, glorying in his might and flinging his strength about as a young giant exercises his thews, with unnecessary vigor in the exultant pride of his prowess. The broken door led them into a small courtyard lit by a cresset. Opposite the door was a wide grill of iron bars. A hairy hand was visible, gripping one of these bars, and in the darkness behind them glimmered the whites of eyes. Kemsa stood silent for a space, gazing into the shadows from which those glimmering eyes gave back his stare with burning intensity. Then his hand went into his robe and came out again, and from his opening fingers a shimmering feather of sparkling dust sifted to the flags. Instantly a flare of green fire lighted the enclosure. In the brief glare the forms of seven men standing motionless behind the bars were limbed in vivid detail, tall, hairy men in ragged hillmen's garments. They did not speak, but in their eyes blazed the fear of death, and their hairy fingers gripped the bars. The fire died out, but the glow remained, a quivering ball of lambent green that pulsed and shimmered on the flags before Kemsa's feet. The wide gaze of the tribesmen was fixed upon it. It wavered, elongated. It turned into a luminous green smoke spiraling upward. It twisted and writhed like a great shadowy serpent, then broadened and billowed out in shining folds and whirls. It grew to a cloud moving silently over the flags, Straight toward the grill, the men watched its coming with dilated eyes. The bars quivered with the grip of their desperate fingers. Bearded lips parted, but no sound came forth. The green cloud rolled on the bars and blotted them from sight. Like a fog, it oozed through the grill and hid the men within. From the enveloping folds came a strangled gasp, as of a man plunged suddenly under the surface of water. That was all. Kemsa touched the girl's arm as she stood with parted lips and dilated eyes. Mechanically, she turned away with him, looking back over her shoulder. Already the mist was thinning. Close to the bars, she saw a pair of sandaled feet, toes turned upward. She glimpsed the indistinct outlines of seven still, prostrate shapes. And now for a steed swifter than the fastest horse ever bred in a mortal stable, Kemsa was saying, we will be in Afghanistan before dawn.
Chapter 4 Yasmina Devi could never clearly remember the details of her abduction. The unexpectedness and violence stunned her. She had only a confused impression of a whirl of happenings, the terrifying grip of a mighty arm, the blazing eyes of her abductor, and his hot breath burning on her flesh. The leap through the window to the parapet, the mad race across battlements and roofs, when the fear of falling froze her, the reckless descent of a rope bound to a merlon. He went down almost at a run, his captive folded limply over his brawny shoulder. All this was a befuddled tangle in the Devi's mind. She retained a more vivid memory of him running featly into the shadows of the trees, carrying her like a child, and vaulting into the saddle of a fierce Balkana stallion which reared and snorted. Then there was a sensation of flying, and the racing hooves were striking sparks of fire from the flinty road as the stallion swept up the slopes. As the girl's mind cleared, her first sensations were furious rage and shame. She was appalled. The rulers of the Golden Kingdom south of the Hymelians were considered little short of divine, and she was the Devi of Vendhya. Fright was submerged in regal wrath. She cried out furiously and began struggling. She, Yasmina, to be carried on the saddlebow of a hill chief, like a common wench of the marketplace. He merely hardened his massive thews slightly against her writhings, and for the first time in her life she experienced the coercion of superior physical strength. His arms felt like iron about her slender limbs. He glanced down at her and grinned hugely. His teeth glimmered whitely in the starlight. The reins lay loose on the stallion's flowing mane, and every thew and fibre of the great beast strained as he hurtled along the boulder-strewn trail. But Conan sat easily, almost carelessly in the saddle, riding like a centaur. You hill-bred dog, she panted, quivering with the impact of shame, anger, and the realization of helplessness. You dare! You dare! You dare! Your life shall pay for this! Where are you taking me? To the villages of Afghanistan, he answered, casting a glance over his shoulder. Behind them, beyond the slopes they had traversed, Torches were tossing on the walls of the fortress, and he glimpsed a flare of light that meant the great gate had been opened, and he laughed, a deep-throated boom gusty as the hill wind. The governor has sent his riders after us, he laughed. By crumb we will lead him a merry chase. What do you think, Devi? Will they pay seven lives for a Kshatriya princess? They will send an army to hang you and your spawn of devils, she promised him with conviction. He laughed gustily and shifted her to a more comfortable position in his arms. But she took this as a fresh outrage and renewed her vain struggle until she saw that her efforts were only amusing him. Besides, her light silken garments floating on the wind were being outrageously disarranged by her struggles. She concluded that a scornful submission was the better part of dignity and lapsed into a smoldering quiescence. She felt even her anger being submerged by awe as they entered the mouth of the pass, lowering like a black well mouth in the blacker walls that rose like colossal ramparts to bar their way. It was as if a gigantic knife had cut the Zaibar out of walls of solid rock. On either hand, sheer slopes pitched up for thousands of feet, and the mouth of the pass was dark as hate. Even Conan could not see with any accuracy, but he knew the road, even by night. And knowing that armed men were racing through the starlight after him, he did not check the stallion's speed. The great brute was not yet showing fatigue. He thundered along the road that followed the valley bed, labored up a slope, 
swept along a low ridge where treacherous shale on either hand lurked for the unwary and came upon a trail that followed the lap of the left-hand wall. Not even Conan could spy, in that darkness, an ambush set by Zybar tribesmen as they swept past the black mouth of a gorge that opened into the pass, a javelin swished through the air and thudded home behind the stallion's straining shoulder. The great beast let out his life in a shuddering sob and stumbled, going headlong in mid-stride. But Conan had recognized the flight and stroke of the javelin, and he acted with spring-steel quickness. As the horse fell, he leapt clear, holding the girl aloft to guard her from striking boulders. He lit on his feet like a cat, thrust her into a cleft of rock, and wheeled toward the outer darkness, drawing his knife. Yasmina, confused by the rapidity of events, not quite sure just what had happened, saw a vague shape rush out of the darkness, bare feet slapping softly on the rock, ragged garments whipping on the wind of his haste. She glimpsed the flicker of steel, heard the lightning crack of stroke, parry and counterstroke, and the crunch of bone as Conan's long knife split the other's skull. Conan sprang back, crouching in the shelter of the rocks, out in the night men were moving, and a stentorian voice roared. What? You dogs, do you flinch? Incurse you and take them. Conan started, peered into the darkness and lifted his voice. Yeah, Afzal, is it you? There sounded a startled imprecation, and the voice called warily. Conan? Is it you, Conan? Aye, the Sumerian laughed. Come forth, you old war dog. I've slain one of your men. There was movement among the rocks, a light flared dimly, and then a flame appeared and came bobbing toward him, and as it approached, a fierce bearded countenance grew out of the darkness. The man who carried it held it high, thrust forward, and craned his neck to peer among the boulders it lighted. The other hand gripped a great curved tolwa. Conan stepped forward, sheathing his knife, and the other roared a greeting. Aye, it is Conan. Come out of your rocks, dogs. It is Conan. Others pressed into the wavering circle of light, wild, ragged, bearded men, with eyes like wolves and long blades in their fists. They did not see Yasmina, for she was hidden by Conan's massive body. But peeping from her covert, she knew icy fear for the first time that night. These men were more like wolves than human beings. What are you hunting in the Zaibar by night, Yar Afsal? Conan demanded of the burly chief, who grinned like a bearded ghoul. Who knows what might come up the pass after dark? We was always a nighthawks, but what of you, Conan? I have a prisoner, answered the Sumerian, and moving aside he disclosed the cowering girl. Reaching a long arm into the crevice, he drew her trembling forth. Her imperious bearing was gone. She stared timidly at the ring of bearded faces that hemmed her in, and was grateful for the strong arm that clasped her possessively. The torch was thrust close to her, and there was a sucking intake of breath about the ring. She is my captive, Conan warned, glancing pointedly at the feet of the man he had slain, just visible within the ring of light. I was taking her to Afghulistan, but now you have slain my horse, and the Kashatriyas are close behind me. Come with us to my village, suggested Yar Afsal. We have horses hidden in the gorge. They can never follow us in the darkness. They are close behind you, you say? So close that I hear now the clink of their hooves on the flint, answered Conan grimly. Instantly there was movement. The torch was dashed out and the ragged shapes melted like phantoms into the darkness. 
Conan swept up the Devi in his arms, and she did not resist. The rocky ground hurt her slim feet in their soft slippers, and she felt very small and helpless in that brutish, primordial blackness among those colossal nighted crags. Feeling her shiver in the wind that moaned down the defiles, Conan jerked a ragged cloak from its owner's shoulders and wrapped it about her. He also hissed a warning in her ear, ordering her to make no sound. She did not hear the distant clink of shod hooves on rock that warned the keen-eared hillmen, but she was far too frightened to disobey in any event. She could see nothing but a few faint stars far above, but she knew by the deepening darkness when they entered the gorge mouth. There was a stir about them, the uneasy movement of horses. A few muttered words, and Conan mounted the horse of the man he had killed, lifting the girl up in front of him. Like phantoms except for the click of their hooves, the band swept away up the shadowy gorge. Behind them on the trail they left the dead horse and the dead man, which were found less than half an hour later by the riders from the fortress, who recognized the man as a Wazuli and drew their own conclusions accordingly. Yasmina, snuggled warmly in her captor's arms, grew drowsy in spite of herself. The motion of the horse, though it was uneven, uphill and down, yet possessed a certain rhythm, which combined with weariness and emotional exhaustion to force sleep upon her. She had lost all sense of time or direction. They moved in soft, thick darkness, in which she sometimes glimpsed vaguely gigantic walls sweeping up like black ramparts or great crags, shouldering the stars. At times she sensed echoing depths beneath them, or felt the wind of dizzy heights blowing cold about her. Gradually these things faded into a dreamy unwakefulness, in which the clink of hooves and the creak of saddles were like the irrelevant sounds in a dream. She was vaguely aware when the motion ceased, and she was lifted down and carried a few steps. Then she was laid down on something soft and rustling, and something, a folded coat perhaps, was thrust under her head, and the cloak in which she was wrapped was carefully tucked about her. She heard Yar Afsal laugh. A rare prize, Conan. Fit mate for a chief of the Afghulis. Not for me, came Conan's answering rumble. This wench will buy the lives of my seven headmen. Blast their souls. That was the last she heard as she sank into dreamless slumber. She slept while armed men rode through the dark hills, and the fate of kingdoms hung in the balance. Through the shadowy gorges and defiles that night, there rang the hooves of galloping horses, and the starlight glimmered on helmets and curved blades, until the ghoulish shapes that haunt the crags stared into the darkness from ravine and boulder and wondered what things were afoot. A band of these sat gaunt horses in the black pit mouth of a gorge as the hurrying hooves swept past. Their leader, a well-built man in a helmet and gilt-braided cloak, held up his hand warningly until the riders had sped on. Then he laughed softly. They must have lost the trail, or else they have found that Conan has already reached the Afghuli villages. It will take many riders to smoke out that hive. There will be squadrons riding up the Zaibar by dawn. If there is fighting in the hills, there will be looting, muttered a voice behind him, in the dialect of the Erexai. There will be looting, answered the man with the helmet. But first, it is our business to reach the valley of Gurashah and await the riders that will be galloping southward from Secunderam before daylight. He lifted his reins and rode out of the defile, his men falling in behind him, thirty ragged phantoms in the starlight. Chapter 5 the sun was well up when Yasmina awoke. 
She did not start and stare blankly, wondering where she was. She awoke with full knowledge of all that had occurred. Her supple limbs were stiff from her long ride, and her firm flesh seemed to feel the contact of the muscular arm that had borne her so far. She was lying on a sheepskin covering a pallet of leaves on a hard-beaten dirt floor. A folded sheepskin coat was under her head, and she was wrapped in a ragged cloak. She was in a large room, the walls of which were crudely but strongly built of uncut rocks, plastered with sun-baked mud. Heavy beams supported a roof of the same kind, in which showed a trapdoor up to which led a ladder. There were no windows in the thick walls, only loopholes. There was one door, a sturdy bronze affair that must have been looted from some Vendian border tower. Opposite it was a wide opening in the wall, with no door but several strong wooden bars in place. Beyond them, Yasmina saw a magnificent black stallion munching a pile of dried grass. The building was fought, dwelling place and stable in one. At the other end of the room, a girl in the vest and baggy trousers of a hill woman squatted beside a small fire cooking strips of meat on an iron grid laid over blocks of stone. There was a sooty cleft in the wall a few feet from the floor, and some of the smoke found its way out there. The rest floated in blue wisps about the room. The hill girl glanced at Yasmina over her shoulder, displaying a bold, handsome face, and then continued her cooking. Voices boomed outside. Then the door was kicked open, and Conan strode in. He looked more enormous than ever with the morning sunlight behind him, and Yasmina noted some details that had escaped her the night before. His garments were clean and not ragged. The broad Bakhariot girdle that supported his knife in its ornamented scabbard would have matched the robes of a prince, and there was a glint of fine Turanian mail under his shirt. "'Your captive is awake, Conan,' said the Wazali girl, and he grunted, strode up to the fire and swept the strips of mutton off into a stone dish." The squatting girl laughed up at him with some spicy jest, and he grinned wolfishly, and hooking a toe under her haunches, tumbled her sprawling onto the floor. She seemed to derive considerable amusement from this bit of rough horseplay, but Conan paid no more heed to her. Producing a great hunk of bread from somewhere with a copper jug of wine, he carried the lot to Yasmina, who had risen from her pallet, and was regarding him doubtfully. Rough fare for a devi girl, but our best, he grunted. It will fill your belly at least. He set the platter on the floor, and she was suddenly aware of a ravenous hunger. Making no comment, she seated herself cross-legged on the floor, and taking the dish in her lap, she began to eat using her fingers, which were all she had in the way of table utensils. After all, adaptability is one of the tests of true aristocracy. Conan stood looking down at her, his thumbs hooked in his girdle. He never sat cross-legged after the eastern fashion. Where am I? she asked abruptly. In the hut of Yar Afzal, the chief of the Kurum Wazulis, he answered. Afghulistan lies a good many miles farther on to the west. We'll hide here a while. The Kashatrias are beating up the hills for you. Several of their squads have been cut up by the tribes already. What are you going to do? she asked. Keep you until Chanda Shan is willing to trade back my seven cow thieves, he grunted. Women of the Wazalis are crushing ink out of shocky leaves, and after a while you can write a letter to the governor. A touch of her old imperious wrath shook her as she thought how maddeningly her plans had gone awry, leaving her captive of the very man she had plotted to get into her power. She flung down the dish with the remnants of her meal and sprang to her feet, tense with anger. I will not write a letter. If you do not take me back, they will hang your seven men, and a thousand more besides. 
The Wazuli girl laughed mockingly. Conan scowled, and then the door opened and Yar Afsal came swaggering in. The Wazuli chief was as tall as Conan, and of greater girth, but he looked fat and slow beside the hard compactness of the Cimmerian. He plucked his red-stained beard and stared meaningly at the Wazuli girl, and that wench rose and scurried out without delay. Then Yar Afsal turned to his guest. The damnable people murmur Conan, quoth he. They wish me to murder you and take the girl to hold for ransom. They say that anyone could tell by her garments that she is a noble lady. They say, why should the Afkab dogs profit by her, when it is the people who take the risk of guarding her? Lend me your horse, said Conan. I'll take her and go. Push! Boomed, ya Afzal. You think I can't handle my own people? I'll have them dancing in their shirts if they cross me. They don't love you, or any other outlander, but you saved my life once, and I will not forget. Come out, though, Conan. A scout has returned. Conan hitched at his girdle and followed the chief outside. They closed the door after them, and Yasmina peeped through a loophole. She looked out on a level space before the hut. At the farther end of that space, there was a cluster of mud and stone huts, and she saw naked children playing among the boulders, and the slim, erect women of the hills going about their tasks. Directly before the chief's hut, a circle of hairy, ragged men squatted facing the door. Conan and Yar Afsal stood a few paces before the door, and between them and the ring of warriors, another man sat cross-legged. This one was addressing his chief in the harsh accents of the Wazuli, which Yasmina could scarcely understand, though as part of her royal education, she had been taught the languages of Iranistan and the kindred tongues of Gulistan. I talked with a Dagozai who saw the riders last night, said the scout. He was lurking near when they came to the spot where we ambushed the Lord Conan. He overheard their speech. Chanda Shan was with them. They found a dead horse, and one of the men recognized it as Conan's. Then they found the man Conan slew, and knew him for a Wazuli. It seemed to them that Conan had been slain and the girl taken by the Wazuli, so they turned aside from their purpose of following to Afghulisan, but they did not know from which village the dead man was come, and we had left no trail a Kshatriya could follow. So they rode to the nearest Wazuli village, which was the village of Jugra, and burnt it, and slew many of the people. But the men of Kojur came upon them in darkness and slew some of them, and wounded the governor. So the survivors retired down the Zahaibar in the darkness before dawn, but they returned with reinforcements before sunrise, and there has been skirmishing and fighting in the hills all morning. It is said that a great army is being raised to sweep the hills about the Zahaibar. The tribes are wetting their knives and laying ambushes in every pass from here to Gurusha Valley. Moreover, Karim Shah has returned to the hills, a grunt went around the circle, and Yasmina leaned closer to the loophole, at the name she had begun to mistrust. Where went he? demanded Yer Afsal. The Dagozai did not know. With him were thirty Iraksai of the lower villages. They rode into the hills and disappeared. These Iraksai are jackals that follow a lion for crumbs, growled Yer Afsal. They have been lapping up the coins Karim Shah scatters among the border tribes to buy men like horses. I like him not, for all he is our kinsman from Iranistan. He's not even that, said Conan. I know him of old. He's an Harkonian, a spy of Yezdegerd's. If I catch him, I'll hang his hide to a tamarisk. But the Shatrias clamored the men in the semicircle. Are we to squat on our haunches until they smoke us out? They will learn at last in which Wazu village the wench is held. We are not loved by the Zaibari. 
They will help the Kshatriyas hunt us out. Let them come, grunted Yar Afzal. We can hold the defiles against a host. One of the men leapt up and shook his fist at Conan. Are we to take all the risks while he reaps the rewards? He howled. Are we to fight his battles for him? With a stride, Conan reached him and bent slightly to stare full into his hairy face. The Cimmerian had not drawn his long knife, but his left hand grasped the scabbard, jutting the hilt suggestively forward. I ask no man to fight my battles, he said softly. Draw your blade if you dare, you yapping dog. The wazoo started back, snarling like a cat. Dare to touch me and here are fifty men to rend you apart, he screeched. What? roared Yar Afzal, his face purpling with wrath. His whiskers bristled, his belly swelled with his rage. Are you chief of Korum? Do the Wazulis take orders from Yar Afzal or from a low-bred cur? The man cringed before his invincible chief and Yar Afzal striding up to him seized him by the throat and choked him until his face was turning black. Then he hurled the man savagely against the ground and stood over him with his tulwar in his hand. Is there any who questions my authority? He roared, and his warriors looked down sullenly as his bellicose glare swept their semicircle. Yar Afzal grunted scornfully and sheathed his weapon with a gesture that was the apex of insult. Then he kicked the fallen agitator with a concentrated vindictiveness that brought howls from his victim. Get down the valley to the watchers on the heights and bring word if they have seen anything, commanded Yar Afzal, and the man went shaking with fear and grinding his teeth with fury. Yar Afzal then seated himself ponderously on a stone, growling in his beard. Conan stood near him, legs braced apart, thumbs hooked in his girdle, narrowly watching the assembled warriors. They stared at him sullenly, not daring to brave Yar Afzal's fury, but hating the foreigner, as only a hillman can hate. Now listen to me, you sons of nameless dogs, while I tell you what the Lord Conan and I have planned to fool the Kshatriyas. The boom of Yar Afzal's bull-like voice followed the discomfited warrior as he slunk away from the assembly. The man passed by the cluster of huts, where women who had seen his defeat laughed at him and called stinging comments, and hastened on along the trail that wound among spurs and rocks toward the valley head. Just as he rounded the first turn that took him out of sight of the village, he stopped short, gaping stupidly. He had not believed it possible for a stranger to enter the valley of Kurum without being detected by the hawk-eyed watchers along the heights. Yet a man sat cross-legged on a low ledge beside the path, a man in a camel hair robe and a green turban. The Wazuli's mouth gaped for a yell, and his hand leapt to his knife hilt. But at that instant, his eyes met those of the stranger, and the cry died in his throat. His fingers went limp. He stood like a statue, his own eyes glazed and vacant. For minutes, the scene held motionless. Then the man on the ledge drew a cryptic symbol in the dust on the rock with his forefinger. The Wazali did not see him place anything within the compass of that emblem, but presently something gleamed there, a round, shiny black ball that looked like polished jade. The man in the green turban took this up and tossed it to the Wazali, who mechanically caught it. Carry this to Yair Afzal, he said, and the Wazali turned like an automaton and went back along the path, holding the black jade ball in his outstretched hand. He did not even turn his head to the renewed jeers of the women as he passed the huts. He did not seem to hear. 
The man on the ledge gazed after him with a cryptic smile. A girl's head rose above the rim of the ledge, and she looked at him with admiration and a touch of fear that had not been present the night before. Why did you do that? she asked. He ran his fingers through her dark locks caressingly. Are you still dizzy from your flight on the horse of air that you doubt my wisdom? He laughed. As long as Yarafsal lives, Conan will bide safe among the Wazuli fighting men. Their knives are sharp, and there are many of them. What I plot will be safer even for me than to seek to slay him and take her from among them. It takes no wizard to predict what the Wazulis will do and what Conan will do when my victim hands the globe of Yizud to the chief of Kurum. Back before the hut, Yara Afsal halted in the midst of some tirade, surprised and displeased to see the man he had sent up the valley pushing his way through the throng. I bade you go to the watchers, the chief bellowed. You have not had time to come from them. The other did not reply. He stood woodenly, staring vacantly into the chief's face, his palm outstretched holding the jade ball. Conan, looking over Yar Afsal's shoulder, murmured something and reached to touch the chief's arm. But as he did so, Yar Afsal, in a paroxysm of anger, struck the man with his clenched fist and felled him like an ox. As he fell, the jade sphere rolled to Yar Afsal's foot, and the chief, seeming to see it for the first time, bent and picked it up. The men, staring perplexedly at their senseless comrade, saw their chief bend, but they did not see what he picked up from the ground. Yar Afsal straightened, glanced at the jade and made a motion to thrust it into his girdle. Carry that fool to his hut, he growled. He has the look of a lotus eater. He returned me a blank stare. Aye, aye. In his right hand, moving toward his girdle, he had suddenly felt movement where movement should not be. His voice died away as he stood and glared at nothing. And inside his clenched right hand, he felt the quivering of change, of motion, of life. He no longer held a smooth, shining sphere in his fingers, and he dared not look. His tongue clove to the roof of his mouth, and he could not open his hand. His astonished warriors saw Yar Afsal's eyes distend, the color ebb from his face. Then suddenly, a bellow of agony burst from his bearded lips. He swayed and fell as if struck by lightning, his right arm tossed out in front of him. Face down he lay, and from between his opening fingers crawled a spider, a hideous, black, hairy-legged monster whose body shone like black jade. The men yelled and gave back suddenly, and the creature scuttled into a crevice of the rocks and disappeared. The warriors started up, glaring wildly, and a voice rose above their clamor, a far-carrying voice of command which came from none knew where. Afterward, each man there, who still lived, denied that he had shouted, but all there heard it. Yah Afzal is dead. Kill the outlander. That shout focused their whirling minds as one. Doubt, bewilderment, and fear vanished in the uproaring surge of the bloodlust. A furious yell rent the skies as the tribesmen responded instantly to the suggestion. They came headlong across the open space, cloaks flapping, eyes blazing, knives lifted. Conan's action was as quick as theirs. As the voice shouted, he sprang for the hut door. But they were closer to him than he was to the door, and with one foot on the sill he had to wheel and parry the swipe of a yard-long blade. He split the man's skull, ducked another swinging knife and gutted the wielder, felled a man with his left fist and stabbed another in the belly, and heaved back mightily against the closed door with his shoulders. Hacking blades were nicking chips out of the jams about his ears, 
but the door flew open under the impact of his shoulders, and he went stumbling backward into the room, a bearded tribesman thrusting with all his fury as Conan sprang back, overreached and pitched headfirst through the doorway. Conan stopped, grasped the slack of his garments, and hauled him clear, and slammed the door in the faces of the men, who came surging into it. Bones snapped under the impact, and the next instant Conan slammed the bolts into place and whirled with desperate haste to meet the man who sprang from the floor and tore into action like a madman. Yasmina cowered in a corner, staring in horror as the two men fought back and forth across the room, almost trampling her at times. The flash and clangor of their blades filled the room, and outside the mob clamored like a wolf pack, hacking deafeningly at the bronze door with their long knives, and dashing huge rocks against it. Somebody fetched a tree trunk, and the door began to stagger under the thunderous assault. Yasmina clasped her ears, staring wildly. Violence and fury within, cataclysmic madness without. The stallion in his stall neighed and reared, thundering with his heels against the walls. He wheeled and launched his hooves through the bars, just as the tribesmen, backing away from Conan's murderous swipes, stumbled against them. His spine cracked in three places like a rotten branch, and he was hurled headlong against the Cimmerian, bearing him backward so that they both crashed to the beaten floor. Yasmina cried out and ran forward. To her dazed sight, it seemed that both were slain. She reached them just as Conan threw aside the corpse and rose. She caught his arm, trembling from head to foot. Oh, you live. I thought, I thought you were dead. He glanced down at her quickly, into the pale, upturned face and the wide, staring dark eyes. Why are you trembling? he demanded. Why should you care if I live or die? A vestige of her poise returned to her, and she drew away making a rather pitiful attempt at playing the devi. You are preferable to those wolves howling without, she answered, gesturing toward the door, the stone sill of which was beginning to splinter away. That won't hold long, he muttered, then turned and went swiftly to the stall of the stallion. Yasmina clenched her hands and caught her breath as she saw him tear aside the splintered bars and go into the stall with the maddened beast. The stallion reared above him, neighing terribly, Hooves lifted, eyes and teeth flashing and ears laid back, but Conan leapt and caught his mane with a display of sheer strength that seemed impossible and dragged the beast down on his forelegs. The steed snorted and quivered, but stood still while the man bridled him and clapped on the goldwork saddle with the wide silver stirrups. Wheeling the beast around in the stall, Conan called quickly to Yasmina, and the girl came, sidling nervously past the stallion's heels. Conan was working at the stone wall, talking swiftly as he worked. A secret door in the wall here that not even the Wazuli know about. Yar Afzal showed it to me once when he was drunk. It opens out into the mouth of the ravine behind the hut. Ah! As he tugged at a projection that seemed casual, a whole section of the wall slid back on oiled iron runners. Looking through, the girl saw a narrow defile opening in a sheer stone cliff within a few feet of the hut's back wall. Then Conan sprang into the saddle and hauled her up before him. Behind them, the great door groaned like a living thing and crashed in, and a yell rang to the roof as the entrance was instantly flooded with hairy faces and knives in hairy fists. And then the great stallion went through the wall like a javelin from a catapult and thundered into the defile, running low, foam flying from the bit rings. 
That move came as an absolute surprise to the Wazilis. It was a surprise, too, to those stealing down the ravine. It happened so quickly, the hurricane-like charge of the great horse, that a man in a green turban was unable to get out of the way. He went down under the frantic hooves, and a girl screamed. Conan got one glimpse of her as they thundered by, a slim, dark girl in silk trousers and a jeweled breastband, flattening herself against the ravine wall. Then the black horse and his riders were gone up the gorge like the spume blown before a storm, and the men who came tumbling through the wall into the defile after them met that which changed their yells of bloodlust to shrill screams of fear and death. Thank you for listening. Conan and Friends is an In Shambles production. 